Today is May 28th, 2020, and uh, first uh, let me uh, cover some old business uh, following Robert's Rules of Order uh, from uh, my last Tay show on Sunday. Uh, I read from uh, an article about uh, the post-World War II novel The Plague by Camus, and uh, one observer noted that in Camus' novel, the the real plague could be understood as fascism, uh, Nazism, Mussoliniism, Japanese fascism. It's understandable that it would be under, could be understood that way in the uh, aftermath of World War II. Um, but I would submit that the real plague, dating back before World War II, before the first recorded major plague, which uh, I read from on Sundays in the 6th century in Egypt, way back to the Stone Age and beyond, is the Three Poisons greed, ill will, and delusion. These we understand in Buddhism as the the ultimate poison that is always lurking as a virus in all of us until, I suppose, maybe, full enlightenment. Greed, ill will, and delusion well, at least ill will, really, and fear, and, and greed, those first two, greed and ill will, you could say, really um, are rooted in fear. And one, one timeless strain of fear is otherism. It's us and them, which itself grows out of self and other, self and other than self, other races, other ethnic groups, other religions, other ethnicities. And that leads me to uh, now a time in current events that uh, could even for the moment, overshadow the pandemic, and that is racism, institutionalized racism in this country, endemic racism. We've seen recently, the last uh, week or two, we've been reminded of how deep racism runs in our country by uh, the incident where the black jogger Ahmad Arbery in Georgia was gunned down by two white men, father and son, for seemingly no reason. Um, and there was, in Minnesota this past week, George Floyd, um, who the police set upon because they had gotten a call that he had passed a counterfeit $20 bill. 
And then one of the four police put his knee on the neck of this man, 47-year-old man, while the other three stood around and watched. They say that the cop's knee was on his neck for full seven minutes. When the ambulance finally got there, after he'd gone limp, they loaded him into the ambulance, limp, and he was pronounced dead at the hospital. Ghastly, ghastly misuse of authority, police authority. They were fired, all four of them, by the mayor, and they faced the real prospect of uh, murder charges, at least the one. And then, on top of that, also this past week, the uh, African-American bird watcher in Central Park in New York who uh, pleaded with a white woman who was walking her dog to put the dog on a leash in accordance with the, uh, the rules, the leash rules in Central Park, and she reacted in a despicable way. Uh, he did everything right. This guy knew what he was doing. He, first of all, he used please half a dozen, a dozen times. And uh, he had the foresight to record on his camera, record her reaction, which was just terrible. She immediately grabbed her phone and uh, called 911 and claimed that this African-American man was threatening her life. Well, she uh, she has since been uh, fired from her job in charge of uh, uh, insurance portfolios at some, I don't know, financial services corporation in New York. And uh, her dog was even taken away from her, I, I assume, because she's shown on the video as, as uh, mishandling the dog, getting rather um, rough with the dog. So her life has just been upended, um, and we can find a little sympathy for her, but at the same time, it's just a horrible reminder of, of how, how deep is this problem. And it goes back to the Constitution itself. Uh, and here I'm drawing from uh, a book on uh, American history by Jill Lepore that I started on, where she makes it quite clear that uh, that the Electoral College that keeps uh, superseding the popular vote the Electoral College itself is all entwined with the demands of Southern slave owners uh, that, uh, well, without getting in above my pay grade, uh, Time Magazine, not exactly a left-wing radical publication, uh, wrote in 
in uh, 2016 that uh, the standard civics class accounts of the Electoral College rarely mention the real demon dooming direct national election in 1787 and 1803, slavery. Uh, they write the savvy Virginian, James Madison, um, said that the system of direct national election, uh, the popular vote, would be unacceptable to the South. And uh, this is what he's quoted as saying, the right of suffrage was much more extensive in the northern than the southern states, and the latter, that is the southern states, could have no influence in the election on the score of Negroes. In other words, the author um, of Akil Reed Amar, who teaches constitutional law at Yale, in other words, in a direct election system, the North would outnumber the South, whose many slaves, more than half a million in all, of course could not vote. But the Electoral College, a three-fifths prototype of which Madison proposed in this same speech, instead let each Southern state count its slaves, if only with a two-fifths discount, in computing its share of the overall count. In other words, for them to sign on to the Constitution they had to uh, get their way and uh, and and be insist on the electoral college. Uh, there are probably other reasons too, but um, he goes on to say, if the system's pro-slavery tilt was not overwhelmingly obvious when the Constitution was ratified, it quickly became so. For thirty-two of the Constitution's first thirty-six years a white slave-holding Virginian occupied the presidency. As pointed observers remarked at the time, Thomas Jefferson, for example, metaphorically rode into the executive mansion on the backs of slaves. So this horrible virus of ours as a country goes back a long time and we continue to be reminded of how virulent it is and how deeply embedded it is. We can also, just as we can find some sympathy, shred of sympathy for this black woman who, I mean, excuse me, the white woman uh, facing the black bird watcher, we can appreciate, we can try to understand, not excuse it, but understand that she was afraid. That was her conditioning. And we can perhaps understand that the cop with his knee on the neck of uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy in Minnesota. That uh, he was absolutely stoked up on adrenaline and furious with this man who may have offered some resistance, we can understand the hormonal components of these reactions without excusing it. Um, so this is this, and we can also understand that this is part of 
what we all have to contend with at times, or most of us, I suppose, where uh, we have these just these automatic reactions, body reactions, like this this white woman and this cop um, that is can be understandable, but as practitioners, as Zen practitioners, as practitioners of the Dharma, we have to find a way to override those immediate reactions. That's part of what practice is for, to um, to help us get beyond our animalistic reactions, uh, create a little space. This is what meditation can do. It can create a tiniest little bit of space between the provocation and our reaction where we can take even a half a breath and not react uh, in such a with such a blind rage. We can do this with the help of meditation. I found a uh, an excellent column in the New York Times uh, from yesterday by uh, Charles Blow. He's one of one of their regular opinion columnists, and uh, I'm just going to read a little bit about it. Uh, the name of the article is How White Women Use Themselves as Instruments of Terror. Just a few phrases. <clears throat> he says, White women weaponizing racial anxiety, using their white femininity to activate systems of white terror against black men. And he says, Throughout history, white women have used the violence of white men and the institutions these men control as their own muscle. From the beginning, anti-black white terrorists use the defense of white women and white purity as a way to wrap violence in valor. Carnage became chivalry. And then he ticked off a number of the most notorious cases of, of, uh, of <coughs> lynchings. I also... Uh, Last year, when I had some time to read, I found this uh, this New Yorker magazine from 2016, if I must be honest, where uh, I read this extremely inspiring article about a black lawyer in Alabama by the name of Brian Stevenson, who has patiently poured through historical records for years to document more than 4,000 lynchings. It's just uh, just a tremendous bodhisattva, this man. But uh, one of the most notorious uh, cases of lynch- or victims of lynching mentioned in yesterday's column by Charles Blow was uh, Emmett Till. That name, I bet, will be familiar to some of you. He was. Uh, this was in 1955. He was only 14 years old, and he was lynched after his white female accuser claimed that he grabbed her and was menacing and sexually crude toward her. I'll spare you the details of the lynching, um, but the author says, a few years ago the woman admitted to an author that she had lied. 
it's just breaks your heart to hear about these cases through history, but ongoing now. There are things that people who have the time, probably when it's not a pandemic, but anyway, people who have the time can do uh, social activism, political activism. But uh, even even people not active in those those really commendable ways can go to the root of racism and otherism more broadly through this practice of zazen. That's that's what we owe the world, is getting to the root of it all and neutralizing, detoxifying, finding a, a spiritual vaccine for all of this terrible legacy of racism. One final note that uh, will be mentioned in today's uh, Sangha email. Uh, this Sunday, to mark the, um, the terrible milestone of now our having uh, having 100,000 U.S. coronavirus deaths, uh, I'm going to, after a somewhat shorter tasha, I'm going to read uh, the uh, memorial prayer three times as we do in our memorial services. Um, so I'll just leave it for people who want to know a little bit more uh, to, to uh, see the item we are including in today's Sangha email. 